You say that you are my judge. I do not know if you are, but I tell you that you must take good care not to judge me wrongly, because you will put yourself in great danger. I warn you, so that if God punishes you for it, I would have done my duty by telling you. One life is all we have, and we live it as we believe in living it. But to sacrifice what you are, and to live without belief, that is a fate more terrible than dying. I place trust in God, my Creator, in all things. I love Him with all my heart. You may well ask me some things on which I shall tell you the truth, and some on which I shall not tell it to you. If you were well informed about me, you would wish to have me out of your hands. I have done nothing except by revelation. If I am not in the grace of God, may God place me there. If I am, may God so keep me. I should be the saddest in all the world if I knew that I were not in the grace of God. But if I were in a state of sin, do you think the voice would come to me? I would that everyone could hear the voice as I hear it. I think I was about thirteen when it came to me for the first time. What concerns my dressing as a man is a small thing, less than nothing. I did not take it by the advice of any man in the world. I did not take this dress or do anything but by the command of our Lord and of the angels. Which did you care for most, your banner or your sword? Better forty times better my banner than my sword. In what likeness did St. Michael appear to you? I did not see a crown. I know nothing of his dress. Was he naked? Do you think God has not wherewithal to clothe him? They do not order me to disobey the church, but God must be served first. Of the love or hatred God has for the English I know nothing, but I do know that they will all be thrown out of France, except those who die there. I was thirteen when I had a voice from God for my help and guidance. The first time that I heard this voice, I was very much frightened. It was midday in the summer, in my father's garden. I had not fasted the day before. I heard this voice to my right, towards the church. Rarely do I hear it without its being accompanied also by a light. This light comes from the same side as the voice. Generally, it is a great light. Since I came into France, I have often heard this voice. I will not answer you about that. I have revelations touching the king that I will not tell you. I firmly believe, as firmly as I believe the Christian faith and that God has redeemed us from the pains of hell, that the voice comes from God and at his bidding. Previous quotes were from Testimony of Joan of Arc at her trial for heresy in 1431. To Charles, the French Dauphin I bring you news from God, that our Lord will give you back your kingdom, bringing you to be crowned at Reims, and driving out your enemies. In this I am God's messenger. Do you set me bravely to work, or I will raise the siege of Orléans? To the English captain at Orléans, the site of Joan of Arc's first victory. Glasdale, Glasdale, yield, yield to the King of Heaven. You have called me whore. I pity your soul and the souls of your men. You men of England, you have no right to this kingdom of France. The King of Heaven orders and notifies you through me, Joan the Maiden, to leave your fortresses and go back to your own country, or I will produce a clash of arms to be eternally remembered. And this is the third and last time I have written to you. I shall not write anything further and a few final quotes by Joan of Arc. I do not fear their soldiers. My way lies open. If there are soldiers on the road, I have my lord with me, who will make a road for me to reach the Dauphin. I was born for this. Whenever I am unhappy, because men will not believe me in the things that I say at God's bidding, I go apart and pray to God, 
complaining to him that those to whom I speak do not easily believe me. And when I have made my prayer to God, I hear a voice that says to me, Child of God, go, go, go. I shall be with you to help you, go. And when I hear that voice, I feel a great joy. Indeed, I would that I might ever be in that state. Alas, that my body, clean and whole, never been corrupted, today must be consumed and burnt to ashes. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 17, Pre-Capitalism. These are the words of Joan of Arc as recorded by the court stenographers in her trial, by her contemporaries, and in her letters. A bit more about her a little bit later in this episode. As far as I know, pre-capitalism isn't a word, but it seems to me like it should be. In a few episodes, we're going to watch capitalism change the world completely and irrevocably, like it hasn't been changed since the advent of agriculture. But capitalism didn't just spring onto the scene with the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Capitalism required certain conditions to exist before it could come into being. By my count, there were five prerequisites to capitalism. In England, at least, the period from 1066 to the end of the Middle Ages can be seen as a slow evolution in which these preconditions developed and paved the way for capitalism to come to England. The first necessary precondition was a farming system that provided enough food to feed a sufficiently large number of merchants, tradesmen, and consumers to power the economy. We've talked about improving farming techniques over the centuries that allowed more people to live in cities, but the latter Middle Ages were a time of great advances in agriculture in Europe. During this period, improvements to the plow spread throughout England. From the time of the Roman occupation in England, a light wooden Mediterranean plow had been used. Now a much heavier plow was used. It was so heavy it required a wheel and had an iron plowshare to cut the ground. This plow, unlike the old plow, turned the soil over, which aerated the soil and allowed it to drain properly. Another agricultural development was the horse collar which was introduced somewhere around the year 1000 and became widespread throughout England during this time as well. This allowed horses rather than oxen to plow English land for the first time. Oxen were strong but slow. A peasant with a team of horses could plow much more land in a day than he could with a team of oxen. Both of these developments, along with improved crop rotation techniques, added greatly to the productivity of English farming as deeply plowed fields were much more productive, and a team of horses could plow far more land than a team of oxen in the same period of time. In 1066, a farmer in England would have to save about half his grain crop from one year in order to sow his fields for the next year's crop. By 1300, the same farmer's descendants would only have to save about a quarter of their harvest to sow the next year's crop. This excess in grain production led to the widespread construction of water mills throughout England that were able to mill far more grain than previous hand-milling methods. This new food surplus led to the growth of the second precondition, a strong middle class. Historians tell us that the period from about 900 to 1300 in Europe was one of the longest periods of sustained population growth in human history. Improvements to agriculture, as well as a cooperating warm, dry climate, led to larger families and greater food security. Following the Roman withdrawal from southern England in 410 AD, 
English peasants were little more than subsistence farmers. Towns were small, and trade was rudimentary. Even London was only able to house about 10,000 inhabitants. But England was able to eke out a small excess of food and goods over what was necessary to survive. William the Conqueror's Doomsday Book recorded that London's population had grown to 18,000 in 1086. But now, with the advent of the wheeled plow and other farming advances, England's towns and cities grew very significantly throughout the Middle Ages. Three centuries after William the Conqueror, London had a population of about 45,000. Town and city population grew similarly throughout England. The towns were filling with craftsmen and merchants. This growth in tradesmen in the Middle Ages meant a corresponding increase in the amount of consumer goods available by the latter Middle Ages, and a proportional increase in the merchants to ship, trade, and sell the goods. Increasing numbers of craftsmen creating consumer goods, that is well, led to a much larger middle class with enough wealth for the first time to purchase what other craftsmen were making. Without this burgeoning middle class, the Industrial Revolution couldn't have happened. Both the craftsmen and merchants began establishing guilds by the 11th century. These guilds regulated the quality, hours, and working conditions of their members. The guilds would ultimately end up controlling at least some town governments and regulating the prices, quality, weights and measures, and business practices of guild members. No one could practice a craft or trade in medieval England without being a member in good standing of a guild. This is my own measure, but you can measure the strength of an economy by the value of the goods and services that exist in that economy, less the total debt, both public and private, existing in that economy. The value of goods is straightforward. It's the price that a willing seller is willing to pay a willing buyer for a particular good. The value of services is a little bit more problematic, but if a ferryman works on a particular river and ferries travelers across, saving them a 20-mile trip to the next bridge and back, there's a certain value that should be able to be placed on that. The value of the local Pilates studio might be a little bit more problematic, but still, there's a value that can be placed on that. Add the value of all these goods and services and deduct the amount of public and private debt in a nation. Then divide by the number of people in the nation, and you have a number showing the value per capita of that nation's population. This number, whatever it was, was much higher in 15th century England than it was in 11th century England. People at the end of the Middle Ages had much more wealth than at the end of the Dark Ages. Consequently, they had the ability to buy consumer goods, which they did on a scale not seen in England before driving the demand that brought England to the verge of capitalism. The third precondition for capitalism is the development of strong trade networks. Excess food production led to the growth of cities, which created the demand for more food production, which led to more city growth, etc. All this urban growth and increased demand for food meant that crops had to be brought in from increasingly further away. This led to the building and improvement of more and better roads throughout England. This allowed for more and better trade. Most transport of goods was still done by ship, however, and would be until the advent of railroads. In England, better roads, better shipping, more demand, etc., famously led to the growth of sheep herding and the development of the wool trade. There had been a subsistence wool trade during the Dark Ages, 
but this probably provided for little more than enough for most people to be clad in very basic clothing. In the 13th century, however, growing middle classes all over Europe demanded finer clothing in greater quantities than ever before. English wool became known as the best in Europe, and there was a large and ever-growing demand for it. Wool processors and cloth manufacturers in places like Flanders, Antwerp, and Genoa demanded ever greater amounts of English wool. As more money flowed into England and English merchants were able to afford the machinery to finish the wool themselves, they began to export more and more finished cloth, retaining even more wealth in England. Of course, the existence of large woolen mills in Flanders and elsewhere meant that there were good roads and efficient means of trade throughout Europe. The wool was probably England's biggest export. As farming methods became more efficient, more people moved to towns and cities and became merchants and tradesmen. All this meant that more people were working more man-hours to produce more goods. This meant that more people had more wealth to trade. By the end of the Middle Ages, extraordinary trade networks had been set up throughout Europe. Different areas were known for the production of different goods, wool production, weaving, barrel-making, cheeses, pickled herring, and so on. The new roads and advances in shipping meant that English citizens in Southampton could not only ship goods to Edinburgh, but could ship goods to much of England. And these trade networks will become networks that will enable capitalism to thrive with the advent of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. The fourth precondition for capitalism is a government that does not overregulate trade and merchants along with a functioning court system that protects both commerce and property in an impartial manner. When William the Conqueror conquered England in 1066, he installed himself as king. He came from a culture in France in which the king was the main power in the state. He then proceeded to enforce a very strong monarchy in England. Of course, a medieval king must have the support of his nobility. William's answer to this, as most conquering monarchs, was to kick out the old English dukes, barons, and earls, and to install his family and close supporters as the new nobility in England. But who had the lawmaking authority in William's England? It was essentially William. William didn't come from a republican tradition like ancient Rome. He had no legislative assembly that proposed, passed, or confirmed laws. He simply made laws as he felt necessary. This, then, was a system of laws under William's Norman dynasty and at the beginning of the Plantagenet dynasty that began in 1141 after a long English civil war. And so it was when King John took the throne in 1199. You may remember King John from popular cultural depictions of him as a bumbling tyrant king. Actually, those pop depictions of him aren't that far off the mark. He was a poor administrator, selfish, cruel, and didn't care what others thought. Basically, he was a really bad king who pissed everyone off. The first strong Plantagenet king was Henry II, who assumed the throne in 1154. John was his son who took over when his brother Richard the Lionheart died while crusading. He didn't have strong bonds with his dukes and barons when he assumed the throne, and because of his contrarian nature, never developed the kind of relationships with them that he would need. Remember at this time, people were loyal to kings, not nations. William had land holdings as a baron in France. In addition to these lands, King Henry II expanded his kingdom in France, including Brittany, Toulouse, and other land holdings in central France. In addition to all of his other inadequacies, 
John lost the bulk of the English monarchy's lands in France because he was not only an incompetent king, but an incompetent general as well. Turns out that wars are very expensive, even when you lose. So John kept going back to his nobles and demanding more and more taxes. None of this endeared King John to his nobles. When he couldn't get all of the taxes he wanted, he started taking lands. Remember, though, that the feudal system relied on mutual obligations between lords and vassals. You could only piss off your dukes and barons so much before they started to rebel. And rebelled they did. They got together and forced John to sign the Great Charter, or Magna Carta, which limited the power of the king, including his power to tax. It also set up a gathering of nobles that would grant the king permission for any extraordinary taxes. This would ultimately evolve into Parliament. Before Parliament, the only check on the king's power was how much his vassals were willing to tolerate. Once Parliament assumed real power, it began to pass laws. With this, England developed the rule of law, just as ancient Athens and Rome had. So the king could make laws, and the Parliament ultimately would have lawmaking power. But England had one more lawmaking body. This one was typically English, the courts. If Parliament passed a law that said the statute of limitations on theft was three years, but a noble was off fighting in the Hundred Years' War and didn't learn of the theft until he returned a year later. Did the statute of limitations start on the day of the theft or when the victim learned of it? If Parliament didn't specify, these questions were answered by the courts. Thus, a body of judge-made law grew up in England known as common law. I say this is typically British because it's a very decentralized way to create law. There's no one lawmaking authority. Any number of appellate judges can do it with any case. There's no planning or forethought to it. Cases are decided randomly as they happen to come before the court. Once a case is decided, it remains precedent for all lower courts unless and until it's overturned. This seems very British because the British brand of feudalism was also very decentralized. By the end of the Middle Ages, then, the rule of law was well established, and England was no longer governed by the whims of a single king. Laws in Parliament were made by nobles who were concerned about property rights, so the laws and court system of England were set to adequately adjudicate the kinds of property disputes that would inevitably result with the rise of capitalism. Finally, my last prerequisite for capitalism is a free market. This is where I think that England was a natural for capitalism to develop. We were often taught English history as the reign of this or that king that led an army to this war or to put down that rebellion. This is valuable, but if we understand history this way, we wouldn't understand what happened for 99% of the country. For the average English peasant or town dweller during the Middle Ages, the king and his ministers were far away and the only real relevance the king had to their lives were to the taxes he levied and the fact that he completed the great chain of being somewhere way at the top. Remember that feudalism was set up in England during the Dark Ages because kings didn't have the money to afford an army to protect their subjects. Thus the system of lords and vassalage that was feudalism was created. Dukes owed their allegiance to the king, counts owed their allegiance to their dukes, and peasants owed their allegiance to the duke or count that was their lord. This system didn't make so much sense in the later Middle Ages when there was a much stronger cash economy. Towns had not been a major factor at the creation of the feudal system back in the midst of the Dark Ages. 
small farming excesses meant that England could not support a large non-farming population at the time. All this meant that it was the peasant's immediate lord, usually a duke or count, that had relevance to the peasant's life, not the king. With the increased agricultural production we've been discussing, however, and the growth of a strong money-based economy, the substantial growth in cities and towns during the Middle Ages took place organically, without much regulation or interference from the king. In the latter medieval period, Parliament served as an additional check on the growth of the king's powers. Countries like France would be developing more absolutist monarchies, but not so in England. With the extraordinary growth of trade in the Middle Ages and the corresponding rise of the merchant class, merchants were free to make connections and establish trade relationships that allowed them to make the greatest profits. The feudal system as it existed then did not provide for much regulation between fiefdoms, so there was little to prevent strong trade networks from growing organically throughout England. Yet a strong legal system was not set up at the beginning of the Middle Ages, and no capitalist or pre-capitalist system can thrive without a mechanism for adjudicating disputes and provision of some regulation for proper and ethical practice among merchants. The mechanism that grew up to fill this regulatory and adjudicatory void was the medieval guilds. Though the merchant and trade guilds had some anti-capitalistic tendencies in that they were somewhat monopolistic and limited access to trade to only members that they allowed in, they kept standards very high within the merchant community. I think the best thing about the guilds in contributing to what I'm terming pre-capitalism is that they were run by the merchants and tradesmen themselves. This meant that the motivation on part of the guilds was to encourage trade, not to limit it by taxation in order to raise money for the king, though there were some customs duty imposed in the Middle Ages by the crown. These were not enough to discourage the strong trade networks that grew up during this period. We've covered so much territory in this episode that we've missed almost all of the interesting historical detail that this period is so full of. We're now far enough into the historical period, and this era is so completely documented that thousands of fascinating histories have been written about the Middle Ages. For our opening, I've included excerpts from the trial of Joan of Arc in 1431 and quotes that have been attributed to her from primary sources. Joan wins my vote for the most amazing historical figure since the Axial Age, hands down. In the 1420s, the crown prince and king-to-be of France, Charles of Valois, had problems. As the heir to the throne, he was known in France as the Dauphin. Charles was supposed to lead the French army against the English, but he, apparently paralyzed by depression or perhaps a lack of self-confidence, was busy doing nothing. The English, who were on the move, were just a few victories away from finally winning the Hundred Years' War and installing an English king on the throne of France. Pretty much all the histories that I've read on this say it looked like a foregone conclusion that the English were about ready to win this overly long war. Joan was a teenage peasant girl. On the great chain of being, she was just about as far away from the king as you could get. The king was next to God. An underage peasant girl was just a few notches above whatever animal occupied the top rung of the animal kingdom. But Joan put on men's clothing and made it from her village 
across English territory to Chinon, where the Dauphin's palace was. Once there, she gained an audience with the Dauphin, convinced him to lead an attack against the British at Orléans. There, Joan carried Charles' battle standard, and in a stunning display of personal bravery, turned yet another French defeat into victory. Her actions in this victory completely changed the attitude of Charles and his army, who threw themselves into the fight against the English and would ultimately win the war, expelling the English from most of France. Yeah, there's a ton I'm leaving out here. I once read that there are more books written about her than about anyone else. Even more, Joan was captured by the English and tried before she was burned at the stake. Her trial was recorded word for word by stenographers and can be read off the internet. Read it. It's amazing. Or if you don't have time to read it, watch one of the recreations of it online. Walter Cronkite did a good one back in the day. Present sweat and personal bravery with which this 19-year-old unschooled peasant girl faced some of the most educated men in France at the time is stunning and speaks to us clearly through the ages. When I was young, fictional heroines tended to be helpless maidens who were saved by brave male heroes. Then, beginning in the 1990s with movies like Anastasia, we started seeing much more of the brave heroine who saved the day. This heroine is now de rigueur for books and movies. I don't know why Joan of Arc hasn't gained more of a place in our popular culture of today. She invented the young warrior heroine. So now we have at least a very basic handle on England as it was about to emerge from the Middle Ages. In a decentralized economy with strong trade networks. We've talked about the power of networks before. Within a few episodes, we're going to see full-blown capitalism develop. People talk about the steam engine and technical advances that allowed the Industrial Revolution to happen. That, of course, is true, but capitalism is complex. Technological advances alone would never have brought about capitalism. China, at various times, developed technological advances, but never developed capitalism until the 20th century. Think of China and Russia. The Soviet Union famously bragged that it prevented capitalism from establishing itself in the country. Instead, they had a command economy in which the government would come up with five-year plans to determine everything that would be produced and would decide on how these goods would be distributed. Though it tried heroically to keep up with the U.S. economy, the Soviet Union's economy failed miserably, which was one of the primary reasons for the Soviet Union's collapse in 1991. Capitalism needs a protective workforce, a middle class with the cash to be able to buy goods and services, and a free market to provide for and distribute all that the economy is capable of providing. The wealth of the middle class is the driver that propels the economy. The production fuels the economic wealth of the country, and the free market provides consumers. It all works together in a great system. Consumers can go to the merchant and ask for shoes. When the merchant is noticing a strong demand for a particular kind of shoes, he or she can go to suppliers and order more of those shoes. The supplier, experiencing more demand for this shoe, produces more of these shoes and ships them to suppliers. The network works from the bottom, the consumer, who demands the goods, up. In 1500, England had the beginning of a middle class as well as the beginnings of a production economy. The middle class would have to gain more wealth before it would be able to be the strong driver a capitalist economy would need. 
and individual producers would have to transform into industries. But the guilds had built a crucial component of England's upcoming capitalist economy, a network that would be able to buy, sell, and ship the goods that would be produced by the industries that would be built within a couple hundred years. This week's read is Joan, The Mysterious Life of the Heretic Who Became a Saint, by Donald Spoto. Spoto does a good job in making this amazing young woman in these turbulent times come alive. Enjoy. See you next week.